0: This week's edition of the Retail Risk Podcast, sponsored by Alltag, and thanks to our supporting partner, Aura. Now, my guest this week is Charles Allen. Now, Charles is the Senior Retail Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, a real-time interactive industry research platform and available from Bloomberg Professional Services. Now, the reason it's so interesting is that Charles specialises in global food retail, and in fact, all European retailers. Now, prior to joining Bloomberg, Charles worked at Research Boutique consumer equity research, where he was principal and global food retail analyst. Now, during his 10 years in investment management, he was also a buy side equity research analyst at Commerce Bank Asset Management and Credit Agrale Asset Management, where he developed an overview of the global retail sector. Now, began his career at Management Horizons in Columbus, Ohio, along with stints at Wood Mackenzie and Merrill Lynch, Europe honing his very, very impressive retail expertise. Now, welcome, Charles. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, first of all, I think um, for those that don't know Bloomberg Intelligence, perhaps tell me a little bit about that business and then maybe where you sit within that, Charles, and your role, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, Bloomberg Intelligence was something that was developed by Bloomberg about 12 years ago now. And For those of you who know the Bloomberg Terminal, it's got a huge amount of financial data on it, not only financial data, but also government statistics and other things. But people found it very difficult to navigate, particularly if they were trying to get into a specific industry. So a group of mostly sell-side but also buy-side analysts were recruited to build dashboards that would put all the information that you needed for a particular industry into one place. And we curated that data, and then we also added it to a little to it. We um, bought some additional third-party data sets. And so we have dashboards on retail, which is my part of it, that. I mean, if you get onto the dashboard, you can find most of the things that you would want to find that will give you a background on the industry as a whole. Then on top of that, we also specifically write about company research. And so we write about the leading retailers. And we have a a product called Primers. And that is a sort of get smart, quick idea where you've got all of our research is written with a piece of text, a short piece of text, and also an exhibit, that, so you, you've got a visual clue on what is happening. So that's Bloomberg Intelligence very shortly as you said at the beginning i'm a senior analyst here it's my job both to make sure that the data stays up to date on the dashboards and then also to drive the research so we're trying to write about what is interesting in the sector what you know could change things going forward and what has happened
0: and in terms of that um, research is that i guess that's you listening to you know clients the industry as a whole and really just sort of then um, bringing forward key developments and, uh, and and keeping you know people up to date with what's happening.
1: Yeah, I mean to a certain extent, obviously the retail sector is is not short of data. I mean we've not only got um, all the regular reports from governments on retail sales on inflation. I mean, and then there are also industry specific vendors like Kantar um, with market share data. But, Also, unlike in some industries, I mean, the retail sector um, almost always seems to have someone about to report earnings or sales or something. So we have regular updates on what's happening. And so we're we're basically responding to that. Mm. We're also trying to anticipate some of the things that may happen as well. So, you know, we're looking at um, forward-looking indicators, um that may help us to do that we're looking at you know how retailers have allocated their capital um and whether they need to adjust that and what that will mean um again obviously it's quite helpful that a lot of retailers have things like store they publish store opening plans they tell us what they're planning to do in um online and so again you can measure them against what they said they're going to do and whether they're earning the right level of profit on these investments,
0: yeah, and there's sort of an ongoing stream clearly of fascinating insight that that you publish. But um, I was intrigued um, recently that uh, one of the reports talk about the more indebted retailers, the Asda and Morrisons, that have been losing uh, market share um, for sort of the last year or so. Do, you know, do you think that's part of their uh, fiscal constraints? Do you think has that got something to bear on it?
1: yeah i i mean
0: there was no doubt that
1: the um when they were purchased by essentially by private equity um the level of debt um was rather was not greater than there was expected, but the the coupons on the debt jumped very quickly. i mean we had a period of you know very low interest rates for a long time, and so it seemed that debt financing was going to be pretty attractive. Um, it turned out that it hasn't been quite so attractive, um, particularly on the Morrisons deal. I think the, some of the debt was sold on by banks as a loss to them, and the coupons have been higher. So um, although cash flow in retail has, t- has typically been quite strong, is a greater proportion of it for these two companies was just going on debt or debt interest payments. But it wasn't even going on... Um, repaying the debt and you know I mean they're not alone in that I mean we also saw in Sweden um, Ica, the market leader was also bought um, by it's essentially by its shopkeeper owners but also with some private equity and again it looks as if over the last year or so they've also lost a little bit of market share um, to the publicly quoted company um, Axfood in particular.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's quite a concerning trend if we're seeing, you know, so much of the uh, of the profit, you know, earnings going on servicing that that debt. It really, you know, makes it difficult to invest in store fixtures, new technology, and and maybe keep it with some of the competition as well.
1: Well, I, th- I think the biggest issue. I mean, although there is that one as well, but the biggest issue was the need to be super price competitive. Um, as inflation took off, um, you know consumers sort of perhaps naturally drifted um, to the limited assortment discounters Aldi and Lidl in the UK um, is I mean there are a couple of reasons for that one is that they typically have lower prices than other people but also if you're short of money it's usually better to go to shop in a a store with a smaller assortment, because you just can't be tempted to buy so many things, as if you go into a large sixty thousand square foot store.
0: Yeah, it is. It's sort of uh, you know many many years ago in my past, I uh, I uh, ran stores for Aldi, and you know it was interesting to see one of the main drivers for people was you know that limited range was was considered a big plus point opposed to a negative for many because it did allow them to uh, to keep control over their um, spend and, and how much went in the basket. So yeah, it's a, it's a double edged one, isn't it? That one. Yeah. So look, so and one of the things that uh, I've heard you talk about was that um, you know the likes of Carrefour and Tesco and some of the other sort of supermarket incumbents need to consolidate market share and where possible stop customers switching to those discount rivals with lower cost structure. I mean, maybe yeah, is that actually possible to do? Do you think that? Um, have you got an opinion on whether? you know, what they might want to do or how they can actually stop people doing that?
1: Well, I mean, essentially, you have to have a sort of very competitive offer. Um, and you need to be able to, if, you're never going to get your costs completely competitive with an Aldi if you're running very large stores, but you need to get them as low as possible. And I think that, you know, what this, um, in the UK, we saw from probably sort of, early autumn onwards, we basically saw Sainsbury's and Tesco beginning to get close to the level of sales growth that the discounters were having. And probably in particular on a same-store basis, they were probably right there in line with them because obviously Aldi and Lidl were continuing to open stores, so the total sales growth was a bit higher. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we've seen the price competitive Level of those two supermarkets um, really get there. I mean, both of them are obviously run an Aldi price match, which um, it, it essentially reassures people that they're not going to be paying too much for items. I think the the other thing that the advantage for for supermarket for large supermarkets is that they have a much greater participation of branded items in their assortment. And so what we've seen is the branded suppliers have got into this where they've seen volume declines for 18 months or two years. Um, and they want to get back. They want to get some of their volume back. And the way they're doing it is promotions. Um, and it's much easier for a large supermarket to participate in that promotional activity because they traditionally carry the full range of branded items. now. Aldi and Lidl, you know, do get special buys on branded items and everything, but it's not there every week. And um, Tesco and Sainsbury's have both done it in a clever way to really reinforce their loyalty programs. So when you see the um, club card prices, Nectar prices, essentially much of this is promotions funded by suppliers and made available to the members of the loyalty scheme
0: yeah it's an interesting one isn't it and they're they're very very keen to to shout about the benefits that you can get from being in the loyalty scheme and uh it almost feels as if the non-loyalty price is elevated and the uh, and the loyalty price is driven as low as possible just to hammer home the point um so, look, one of the things that, uh, uh, you know, you floated the idea about is that with European food inflation slowing rapidly and, and in some categories even going in reverse, that, that, that might tip into deflation on uh, on some of these items, which seems incredible, given what we've seen over the last sort of 12 months. You know, do you have a t- how do you actually think that that might happen and what impact that might have on the landscape?
1: Well, I mean, there are a couple of things to say. I mean, one is that we did actually see some deflation over Christmas. I mean, you know, all of these 15p vegetable prices um, that we saw in the UK market were lower than they had been last year. So so that was a straight piece of deflation. Um, But on a sort of macro level, um, what we've seen is if you look at the producer price, input price in the UK that is now falling year over year Um, and the producer price output prices inflation is is right down is much lower now what we know is that supermarkets have got a lot of insight into um the producer prices. They I mean own brand programs help with this. They know what people are paying or what they should be paying for most of their input costs. I mean you're not going to know everything all the time, but you've got a very good insight into it. So when they see these producer price input prices down, they're going to they're going back to the um producers and saying we want a lower price. Now also as you know is Every producer has to have a list price um you know the it's a grid, so it's not just a single price. it depends on how much you're buying and it also depends on some other payment terms as well um, But the producers are very reluctant to have to to get a to reduce the actual list price, so what they're doing is basically saying, "Oh well, we'll give you a promotion instead, and so they're basically saying, we'll let the the, the price of this item go down. Now, in the UK, this is quite sort of easy. I think, you know, if we just want to touch on France, it's obviously, I mean, there's an awful lot of legislation about minimum prices and things like that. And you've ended up in this position where, you know, Carrefour um, have said that they're delisting all the PepsiCo products. PepsiCo said, oh, it was us. We stopped supplying Carrefour. Um, and you've got a position where the two of them, have basically got a standoff because it seems that the way the legislation was written, which was, as usual in France, designed to help small, probably producers of fresh food, has ended up enabling branded suppliers to put through some pretty big price increases, um, which has not gone down well with consumers. So you're you're trying to get into this position where um, and then you've got, also got this annual negotiation in France, which has been, again, by legislation, has been shortened to only a month. So it all has to be completed by the end of January. So there's um, a lot of pressure there. And we'll see how it ends up. I mean, usually things come back one way or another. But it's it's going to be it's interesting to see how things have played out when... You know, when you get legislation to try and control prices, you end up with something that maybe isn't what you intended.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and, and and touching on that thread of sort of legislation controlling prices and costs, I've got to ask you, what, what impact do you see on the increase in the UK minimum wage having on uh, on retailers?
1: Well, I mean, it's it's going to be quite a big cost, and we consider, I mean, Sainsbury's have said it's going to cost them 200 million within their cost base, which is um, not an insignificant amount, but it's probably something that's okay for the, for some of the larger supermarkets. But what it does do is when the price inflation drops out, as we expect it largely to do this year, it does mean that you having an awful lot of pressure to ensure you have volume growth. Mm. And you need to be driving volumes so that your sales number is going up and therefore you can afford to pay a bit more for your labor charge. Um, But it's it's going to be more difficult um, for people who aren't getting volume growth. And I think that we're going to see probably more pressure in some of the non-food sector where – essentially sales are much more constrained and it's going to be more difficult for them. But, I mean, realistically, we've also seen, um, you know, particularly at Sainsbury and Tesco, but, you know, some of the other UK retailers as well, um, they've taken out what you might say the labor-intensive parts of their stores. So both the ones I mentioned have taken away all their Almost all their service counters, certainly the ones operated by the companies themselves. There are more self-service tills, and it's essentially just making sure they also rationalise the whole of the um, the management structure in stores to, to to get away with fewer people. So so you're just constantly focusing on trying to make sure that you're as efficient as possible in terms of labour.
0: Yeah, it is an interesting development, isn't it, to see the uh, removal of those, um, you know, uh, butchery and fish departments and mm-hmm. uh, and and sort of it does seem to go in a cycle. Everybody takes them out, takes the cost out, and then at some point somebody will blink, it always feels, and we'll put them back in to try and differentiate themselves in the market. But uh, it does feel as if we're going through the cycle where they're all coming out at the moment. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll watch that one with interest. Mm-hmm. Um. With the latest sort of research, there's all sorts of uh, great facts and stats. Any sort of key highlights or things that you found especially interesting or maybe surprising that's going on at the minute?
1: Um, I think think one of the things that we sort of have been looking at for quite a while now is obviously always online retail and where we are with that. Um, I think it's slightly surprising that, you know, both Tesco and Sainsbury have, reported some increase in the level of online um participation in their grocery and ocado obviously did perhaps slightly better than expected and and certainly also saw an increase now there are probably a couple of things on this is um we talked about people wanting to control the amount they're spending um online is a great way of doing that realistically because you you set your basket before you shop. And if it looks too expensive, you can take some things out and put something else in. So if you've got, I don't know, 70 pounds to spend, you can make sure that you spent 70 pounds and that you, unlike wandering around the store where you've maybe actually end up spending a bit more than that because you put something else in the basket. So there's one thing. Um, I think the other thing particularly in the incumbent supermarkets is that they've got better at essentially d- controlling the costs of online shopping. Is that, I mean, there are a couple of things. Is one is that some of the delivery charges are probably more realistic. It's probably still a subsidy, but it's um, more realistic. And secondly, they've got significantly better in terms of productivity. Now, Ocado will always tell us, oh, well, they're not as efficient as we are. in a warehouse, and that's true, but on the other hand the- the amount of additional capital that's been deployed is quite low mm-hmm. and um i mean the the Tesco have some semi automated facilities uh but generally speaking, you're not putting in a huge amount of capital, whereas an acardo shed costs quite a lot, mm-hmm. and it's got the robots and everything, so the return on capital um remains a problem for acardo and I think will I mean, there are other things that may happen and it will help them, but but online shopping coming back is is an interesting thing. Um, it's also obviously helpful for customer loyalty as well, which is, again, something that people, in a very mature market, you want to make sure that you're keeping all as many of your customers as you can.
0: Yeah, fascinating, isn't that sort of um, Tesco and Ocado, almost different ways of approaching the... The online with with big investment and uh, a more labour intensive to uh, to sort of that that battleground, if you like, um. But finally, looking into sort of twenty twenty four, how would you summarise the uh, the retail landscape within the UK right now? What was your sort of opinion on it?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think we're sort of mixed. Is is that we've seen some of the retailers comment on this a little bit in the sense that with inflation falling. um, you know the outlook for consumer spending is perhaps a little bit better um than people may have thought and but and there are a couple of big buts on this is one is that um the level of employment is is going down a little bit and i think i mean this is something that i think all retailers look at is actually how many people are employed, and therefore how much money is going to be available. Um, And that, I mean, it's it's sort of flat, but if if it sort of drifts slower, then that's going to be something that's going to be a bit of a negative. The second thing is that, you know, historically, there was obviously a huge amount of saving that was built up over the pandemic. And maybe some of the strength of the spending that we saw through you know twenty twenty two and to the end of twenty twenty three was actually people running down savings and so now we we're looking at people actually having to spend their income and so in that sense it's it's going to be continue to be competitive we're going to continue to have to see consumers make choices about where they're choosing to spend money um, I think some of the discretionary categories remain you know are likely to remain quite problematic but on the other hand is it seems that maybe food has passed you know food at home has passed the low point and people are prepared to spend in the supermarkets um perhaps at the expense of some eating out which was obviously a big thing for part of last year
0: yeah it is it's um it's fascinating isn't it, to see those um, developments and maybe with some of the promotions that have been running as well sort of uh, latching on to that if you like reconnection and, and boom in eating at home mm. it's uh, it's a fascinating one to watch for sure um Charles thank you so much indeed for uh, for giving us a run through your latest thoughts and insights absolutely fascinating and um, you know, continue to to do the great work I know uh, I and many others I'm sure listening to this will uh, will look out for your insight and thoughts with uh, with great interest going forward but for now thank you very much indeed. Well, thanks for having me on, Paul.